Please remain standing as you're able. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. So I'll tell you and I expect you to immediately forget I'm the one who left out the last hymn. So um, as we come before God's word, let us do so likely as Jesus and the disciples would have uh, by reciting what he called the great commandment, what was also known by the Hebrew word Shema or listener here. Would you follow after me? Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We spent the summer in 1 Corinthians. We found in this letter many disputes and divisions within the church. So here, in perhaps the most famous chapter, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to pick up in verse 4 and go through 11 and then finish with verse 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love uh, does not envy. Uh, It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. Love does not dishonor others. Love is not easily angered. Love does not keep record of wrongdoings. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always um, trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completion comes, that which is partial disappears. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. But now that I'm a man, I've given up my childish ways. And so there are these three that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. 1 Corinthians 13 may be the most famous chapter in the New Testament, maybe the most famous chapter in the Bible. It's been called a hymn to love, or a poem to love, or it's been called the love chapter. And countless times every year, from that lectern, it is read and commented upon at weddings. And what I need to tell you this morning is it is a beautiful chapter, but Paul would be extremely surprised to find that we use it at weddings. Paul would be extremely surprised that we think of it as a hymn or a poem because Paul wrote it as an argument. If you've been uh, with us at any part of the summer, and if you haven't, let me fill you in, the church at Corinth has got issues, major issues. They've got issues with each other, and they've got issues with Paul. And so in the middle of these issues, Paul, uh, in the discussion of these issues, Uh, now writes this famous chapter. And so it's not at the beginning of what he believes will be a beautiful relationship that he writes this thing. It's in the middle of a relationship that is anywhere from three to five years old that has suffered ups and downs. As Pastor Dinah said in our study on Tuesday, maybe uh, to honor Paul we should not use this at weddings so much as we should use them at anniversaries. You know, after we've been around the block a few times with each other, maybe it's appropriate to read it there. But of course, it wasn't even written for couples. 
It was written for this congregation. As I mentioned, a congregation at odds with each other and at odds with Paul. They've divided in most every way possible and they have put each other down and they've even put Paul down. They've questioned his authority. They've questioned his wisdom. They've questioned his status as an apostle. Uh, They've questioned all sorts of things about him. In fact, when you look at 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and verse 4 and you read about the things that love is not, like love is not, um, uh, it doesn't envy, it isn't boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't dishonor others, um, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep score of what's wrong, it doesn't rejoice uh, in evil. Every one of those things actually was something that they did in Corinth. So I think when they heard this or read this, they knew what Paul was talking about because they were a church that was just even in its early days, starting to come apart at the seams as they competed with each other. Now, they competed with each other. It came quite naturally because the Greco-Roman world, as reflected in Corinth, is what we might call an honor system. And I don't mean by honor system like I'm going to tell you I'm going to pay for it and then I will whether you check on me or not. Honor system is this. Everybody competes for honor, and there's only so much honor to go around, and so I have to get my honor at your expense. And so it, in an honor system, it sets people against each other. I want to climb the social ladder, and to do that, I've got to step on you or over you, and it creates enemies of one another. And the Corinthians have brought this attitude to the church. It's like honor is, is a zero-sum game or just a, a piece of pie with, with a limited number of slices, and they're at each other. And, uh, and that's what Paul's inherited, not only in the Corinthian community, but apparently it seeped into the church. Now let me, as an aside real quick, tell you, I'm not here to throw rocks at the Greco-Roman world. I'm not here to throw rocks at the Corinthian church, because quite frankly, those of us who have been in the church very long know that we have our issues as well. In fact, it was the late Dallas Willard who once said at a conference when he was commenting on love your enemies, he said to all of us gathered there, he said, and by the way, if you don't have any enemies, go to church, you'll get one pretty soon. We have not necessarily proven to be any better than the Corinthians at how we handle this. And, and so they're beginning to, to spiral out of control. And so Paul writes what we think is a beautiful passage, and it is, but it's a very hard practical passage to them saying you've got these issues and the antidote for your issues is love now it's not a magic pill as as any of us have known who've who've tried to love other people love them well uh, love is not always an easy thing but it is the answer to their divisions and to their factionalism but then paul goes a step further and it seems to suggest that not only is it the answer to what is troubling them but he also seems to suggest that it's really the best measure of their, of their uh, Christian spiritual maturity. Because in, in Corinth, they're always thinking they're more mature than the other person. And so one of the evidences was which spiritual gift you had. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, healing. That meant, in their eyes, you were more mature to, than the next person. And so one of the things that Paul does is to say that the measure of your, uh, of your life and your spiritual maturity, your life with God in Christ, is not your status, is not the beliefs that you hold, or even, uh, uh, or even the doctrines that you adhere to. There is something that is bigger than all that. Because one of the things Paul says is that spiritual gifts, and including knowledge and prophecy and, and the status of the Corinthians, he said, all, one day all that's gone. 
it's just, it's just going to disappear. It's not going to be around anymore. Uh, it's a little bit like, I grew up with encyclopedias. Did anybody else grow up with encyclopedias? Okay. Um, and, and, and did you ever have to get, like, the update the next year? And then the update the year after that? And then the update the year after that? And then finally I'm looking at the original set of encyclopedias in my parents' house going, they're not worth anything. I mean, the world has changed and knowledge has changed so fast that even the updates were outdated. And I think that's part of what Paul wants to say, that, that our knowledge and our prophecies and our doctrines that we hold, all this stuff he said, this is, is partial. It's incomplete. And one day, when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, none of that will matter. The only thing that will matter is love. You know, there are a lot of issues, and we've talked about this summer, that divide Christians and divide Christians from each other, churches from each other, denominations from each other, even in a denomination. And I've always thought that when I got to heaven, I would want them to say, you know, this was a difficult issue, but David, it turned out you were right about it, and that somebody in heaven will give me a high five. But as I read Paul, I realize that when you get there and the kingdom comes in its fullness, it's going to be like all this stuff, it didn't really matter. What matters is not that you were right and the other person was wrong, but how did you treat that other person that you thought was wrong? Did you love them? Ultimately, that's what's going to stand the test of time. And I could be right or I could be wrong about the issues that face the church today. And ultimately, it's not insignificant, but ultimately it just doesn't last. The only thing that lasts and is going to be love And that's ultimately going to be the measure of how I am growing in Christ. John Ortberg used to put it this way. He said the Pharisees in Jesus' day had what he called boundary marker spirituality or outward things. And they thought if they did this and they did that, different practices, that made them more spiritual than other people. And he said, ultimately, spirituality is not a matter of how often you come to church. I'm glad you do. Or how much you put in the offering plate. Please continue. It's none of that. It's not even the doctrines you hold. Ultimately, your spirituality and your growth comes down to this question. How loving have I become? And if in the practice of your faith, you are more easily angered and less loving than you were six months to a year ago, you might need to re-examine the practice of your faith. Because what's ultimately going to last is love. And I think intuitively, as people mature in the faith, they figure it out, while those of us, while we're maturing, have a hard time figuring it out. Fred Craddock is one of my heroes, died about a year and a half ago. He said on the eve of his 80th birthday, he said, said, when I was in my teens, I wanted to be a preacher. When I was in my 20s, I wanted to be a great preacher. He said, but now that I'm older, I just want to live simply, to love generously, to serve faithfully, to speak truthfully, and leave everything else to God. There was that time that had given the perspective of what really matters. And ultimately, one day, you and I will look back and we'll see everything will have passed away from our childhood and the faith, except for love. That will have continued. And so Paul encourages us to focus on love, which, of course, raises the big question, which is, what is love? How do you define it? Dallas Willard once said this to a group. He said, I love my wife. I love chocolate cake. And, my, and so for one of them, it works out pretty well, and for the other one, not so much. Yeah. And so is love just our desiring? Is love just our eagerness to consume? Or is there something else? 
You know, the Greeks had, I don't know if it's an advantage, but at least a different way, they had four different words for love. And so they had words for love, like brotherly love or love between friends. They had words for uh, romantic or desiring love. And then Paul uses a word they don't often use uh, for a different kind of love called agape, sort of a self-initiating love. And, and they not only have these four words for love, but right there in Corinth, they've got the temple to Aphrodite, and guess what? She happens to be the goddess of love. We ought to be able to look at her and see it. But we don't. You don't see love, not this kind of love in Aphrodite. If you want to see this kind of love, you look at the cross. You don't look up on the hill for Aphrodite's temple. And it's, it's, the difference is a little bit like this. Um, Sometimes when the light is not great, I'll have to use my reading glasses. And I carry them with me on Sunday morning, but my vanity prevents you from seeing them very often. Uh, But when I'm with candles, I'm really in trouble, though it's a form of light. And when there are electric lights on, light bulbs, I do okay. But you know what? If I walk outside on a sunny day in the backyard and read, I don't need my reading glasses at all. That light of the sun surpasses those other lights no matter how good they are. And so one way to think of it is there's nothing wrong with romantic love and there's nothing wrong with love between family and nothing wrong with love between uh, friends. There's nothing, that's all good stuff. But Paul says that's like a, a candle compared to the sun. Paul says this kind of love surpasses everyone and everything. And it's called agape. So let me uh, just give you two quick hints. When you think about agape love, here's two things to keep in mind. Number one, agape love has nothing to do with the value or the worth of the recipient of the love. It's not based on who they are. It's based on who you are. You love because God made you to love, not because they are worthy of love. As one New Testament professor said, Christian love is not like a heat-seeking missile, you know, and it's, and it's sent off and it's looking for something uh, that can receive. Um, it, it, it's not targeted like that. Uh, love is given to the person whether they deserve it or not. That's what makes it Christian love, whether, whether, they, are, whether they are valuable in your sight at the time or not, whether they're doing or not doing what they're supposed to, no matter you love anyway. Um, Another person, a great British theologian, put it this way. He said there are two kinds of of love to think about. One, he said, is a love that seeks for value and a love that creates value. And he said when God loves us, God's not looking for value. It's God's love of us that gives us value. And so the first thing to know about love is that Christian love is given to the other person just because they're there. That's because they're there. That's all they need. They're, they're made in the image of God. And you don't need any other reason to do it. And so you love them. The second thing, which I think is also important, is Christian love is more than an emotion or a feeling. Oftentimes when we talk and think about love, we think about an emotion, a feeling, or even an attitude that we have. And those are not unimportant. But Christian love in the New Testament seems to boil down to how do you treat other persons. Remember that old song, they'll know we are Christians by our... Thank you. You're not as... That's right. Thank you. You're at least as old as I am. Uh, we remember that around the campfire. But it was action. It was, it, was, it was about they'll know we're Christians because we're going to act 
in a certain way, not because we're going to have an attitude about it. I don't know if you grew up or spent any time um, in the South, and sometimes in the Southwest, somebody will describe somebody else falling into trouble, and they'll go, well, bless their hearts, right? Bless their hearts. I think what that really means is, I'm glad I'm not them, and let's just leave it at that. And I think sometimes I think about little Omron, five-year-old in Syria, you saw his picture this week, covered in blood, and I'm like, Bless his heart. Or I think about the floods in Louisiana. Thousands and thousands without homes. Oh, bless their hearts. Christian love moves past that where possible from that attitude. I mean, we can't all go to Syria. But we can do something about Louisiana. It goes from an attitude to an action. You've probably heard the old story. There's an evangelist that's at a college campus and one of the students is listening to him lecture about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And and the student raises his hand. He said, you know, I've been here two years. We've had a lot of people come and talk to us about this theory of love. He said, but, you know, I I would want to pass this on to you Christians. I'd like to see some love with some skin on it. Some love that really results in activity, not a love that's an attitude or an emotion. How do we treat other people? That's what love really is. It's not so much how we feel, but what do we do? And I would simply then add in closing that words matter as much as actions, especially in a time where we tend to speak to one another in society in less than civil tones, and we tend to say things to people that aren't particularly loving, that our actions Our words can be considered a subset of our actions, and I would just remind you of their importance. This past week, at our staff meeting, Matt showed us a video of a TED Talk from eight years ago. Benjamin Zander, who most recently was um, an internationally known conductor, uh, conductor for the Boston Youth uh, Philharmonic, and uh, and he gives a talk, but toward the end, he talks about a woman that he met who had survived Auschwitz. And he said, she said, when I was on the train there, we had already lost my parents. I was 15 and my little brother was 8. And I looked down on the train and my little brother did not have his shoes. And I said to him, why are you so stupid? Where are your shoes? Why can you never have everything together? Then they got there. They went their separate ways. He never survived. She never saw him again. And she said, when I got out of Auschwitz and moved back into life, she said, I made a vow that I would never say anything to someone that couldn't stand as the last thing I ever said. That made sense to me. How can we think about love in a concrete manner? And maybe it's this. Can we promise to ourselves that we will never do something to another person or say something to another person that couldn't stand as the very last thing we ever did or said to them. Maybe that would look more like the love Paul's talking about.